Welcome to Discover Healthier. Everything you need to know about health brought to you by Discovery Health. I'm Azania Musaka. You can join the conversation as we explore some of the most pressing matters in the healthcare environment today. A wide variety of topics and specialist guests will empower you to care for your health now and in the future. Have you ever felt sad or down? Maybe found it hard to concentrate or had excessive fear or worry? Ever had mood changes with highs or lows or significant tiredness and maybe even withdrawn from friends? Have you ever felt unable to cope with daily problems and stress or turned to substance abuse to get through a day? If you have concerns about your mental health, you're not alone. How do you know when it's time to reach out for help? I'm now joined by a woman whose passion for empowering others towards a deep understanding of mental illness and mental health knows no bounds. She's a psychiatrist practicing in Parktown and Soweto and is presently the chair of PsychMG and also the president-elect of the South African Society of Psychiatrists, SASOP. She serves on multiple advisory boards and strives to teach us all about mental health through her frequent radio and television appearances around this theme. She is the dynamic Dr. Sebolelo Siape. Thank you so much for joining us on this very important conversation. Thank you very much, Aza, for inviting me. I'd really like to start by looking at mental health problems, you know, and how they result from a complex interplay between biological, psychological, and the social environment, all these factors coming together. But can you explain the spectrum of mental illness? Yeah, you know, I think it's best maybe we should start by saying what is mental wellness or mental illness? Mm -hmm. It is a complex definition that really not everybody in the world agrees on, but it has to do with for one feeling well enough to achieve what they want to achieve, to be able to contribute in society, to be able to cope with normal stresses. That would be sort of a nutshell of it. But of course, sometimes there are lots of arguments around well-being. Mm-hmm. How, for example, if somebody is a soldier and is involved in killing people, which is what soldiers can do at war, would you still say that is mental wellness? Or somebody who is otherwise well and then, for example, loses their job, they'll be extremely distressed. And and although they're otherwise normal and well, but the distress could be outstanding. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, if you lose your job, you've got debit orders to pay for, you've got school fees and food and this and that. It's very distressing. So the the definition is not cast in stone, but Mm -hmm. it is something in that area. Yeah, so it could range it then from, range, yeah. you know, things that can happen uh, that are triggered from having a bad day to really intense periods in life that can trigger deeper distress. Well, yes and no in that. Remember that we are all entitled to feel sad, to feel distressed, to right. feel anxious about something when there's some reason, you know, as I say, the same example, if you lose your job, you should be reasonably distressed. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't say that is serious illness as such. Because when we say you have a mental illness, it should actually now start to disrupt your normal function, whether your function is occupationally or socially or at leisure. It should be a disruption because... If we said all sadness was mental illness, then we'd all be mentally ill, obviously. But we all can have a sad day, a bad day. We all get anxious. In fact, some anxiety is important for us because we function better when we have that little extra push. But it is at that point where now it's said to be an interference 
in your productivity, in your actions, that now it reaches the area of illness. Yes, we'll talk a little bit later about being able to identify this. You know, as you've just said, some things, yes, they're passing, they're part of building resilience of everyday life, and then others would need um, counseling from a medical practitioner. But from your practice, from your know-how and some of your insights, in brief, what are the top mental illness conditions that people face? By and large, the biggest groups, you know, let's put them in groups, it's easier, mm-hmm. are the anxiety group, I would say. It's got its own issues because many times people are able to sort of hold it under and keep it down and let it not come out or show. But actually the prevalence is quite high and we see it when we look for it, you find it. So it's the anxiety spectrum. And these are groups that we usually use in practice. And that would include anxiety, includes things like panic, like post-traumatic stress disorders, like OCD. That's the anxiety group. Then the next big group, especially in practice, is the depression group. And I will say all men of depression, whether it is depression as just a major mood disorder, as we call it, or major depressive disorders, or it could be on the bipolar spectrum of depression, you know. And then other depressions that would include whether it's postpartum or acute stress. That's a big group. The next big group on the ground with substance abuse related. It's, it's a huge issue. The next group would be the schizophrenia group. Now, schizophrenia, we have to caution that in terms of prevalence of illnesses, it's not a common illness. Much as people talk about it so much that everybody (laughs) who's saying something different is (laughs) schizophrenic, it actually is not a common. It's just that we'll say it is the most aggressive. So it is important in that. And then, uh, you know, things like ADHD is actually Mm. very, very common. And we often don't look at it, especially because, I mean, you know, it's history that before it was just thought to be a childhood disorder. But actually, if you think about it, I mean, when you stop being a child, becoming an adult, what happens to it? Yes. It's still there. It has to be there with you. Mm. So a lot of ADHD. And I think these are the big groups. There's some literature that puts um, eating disorders quite high, but on the ground, we don't see it as high as that. Right. Yeah. Mm, And it does get a lot of share of public conversation. Some do, some don't, but eating disorders, depression, anxiety, they do get a big share. Mm. What are some of the identifiable risk factors for mental illness? There are lots of risk factors. Firstly, it's genetic. A lot of people who have a certain mental illness, you'll find that there might be a family member who has a parent, a sibling. And whenever there's one person that has a mental illness in the family, your risk is so much. When you have two people, your risk is a whole lot higher. It's exponential. When there's three people, it's much, much higher. So it's not like just from one to three to six. No, it will be one to 11 to 22 you know, huge numbers, yeah. So that is a very important risk factor. Next also is trauma. Whether trauma is in the environment, you know, in terms of where you've grown up, where the situations have been difficult and they've had lots of traumatic events, whether exposure, whether experience, that is very important. Chronic illnesses. A lot of people... And we take it for granted because all of us know somebody with diabetes. All of us know somebody with HIV. All of us know somebody with a million other illnesses. But if you think about it, if you are 14 years old and already you're diagnosed with diabetes mellitus, it changes your life. You have to eat differently. You have to be taking medication. You now start to think of mortality. You know, because, and you're thinking of all the effects of it. You know, am I going to lose my sight? And really, many chronic illnesses carry a certain degree of potential to mental illness. And whenever somebody is diagnosed with a serious chronic illness, the family, the person, clinician, anybody involved should be thinking of a mental illness. There was a time when strokes, people who get strokes, the mental illness was not, was left out. 
But I think now it's standard practice, and it should be standard practice, that you get a stroke, you must put on an antidepressant. Yes. Because you know how aggressive a stroke can be. What about cancers? Cancer, any chronic illness, cancer, mm. HIV, mm. the different arthritis. You know, because some are very aggressive and they distort your body image completely. So chronic illnesses, definitely are a risk factor. And the one thing about chronic illnesses and mental health, especially depression, you'll find that the depression mm-hmm. makes the illness worse and the illness makes the depression worse. Yes. So it's a vicious cycle, one driving the other. It's very unpleasant. Right. So it would need a multidisciplinary approach. It always does. Another risk factor is substance abuse. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, especially for psychotic illnesses, a lot of people who abuse substances will have a mental illness. Statistics show us that most people, up to 80% of people who abuse substances have got already got a mental illness. So, you know, chicken and egg, which one came first? Which substances are we talking about? From your more usual substances like alcohol, cannabis, hard drugs, even your over-the-counter type of substances like codeine and things like that. They mm-hmm. can predispose you to depressive illness. I just want to stay with the question of comorbidity. As you said, that a lot of chronic illnesses bring about, as you said, that cycle along with mental illness. So untreated mental illness increases the risk of developing other chronic conditions. Untreated mental illness. There's a study I saw the other day, and it's been replicated by Mm. other researchers, that people with mental illness use the highest percentage of emergency room services for heart problems, for hypertensions, for saw this, saw that, than other people. So already, if you have a mental illness, you're almost on the edge of a, not even on the edge, you're on the cusp of another illness. So it would then, we would see these individuals that their healthcare costs will start to take a toll on the individual. There's a toll on productivity, what they offer in the workplace, how they contribute to society in general. So if we were to really take a look at the costs and the implications of untreated mental health and the other conditions that will start to accompany it, it starts to scale up quite a bit. The cost of untreated mental illness is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. The cost to treat is high, no Mm. doubt. But untreated, it's even worse. Because let's take somebody who's in the working space. People who with mental illness have got the highest absenteeism rate, the highest. And whenever somebody's absent, there is loss to productivity. You know, there's loss to a company. But closely matched there is the presenteeism, which is people who are there at their workstation, but not productive. And if they try and produce or they are being productive, many times they can mess up. You know, and if you have a studio as like this one of yours and somebody with a mental illness will press the wrong buttons and pull the wrong plugs and cause a lot of damage to, to, to the company. So it's already expensive that way. Companies obviously contribute to your medical aid if that's what you, you use. And mental illness spends costs are high, you know. Unfortunately for all of us, many of our tablets are very expensive. Yeah, it's a fight that is going on that should go on that to try and reduce the cost of... But again, because of the nature of mental illness, as you started by saying, there's biological, there's social, there's psychological, even the treatment, therefore, should include all those mm. areas. So that is, unlike, let's say, if you just had a simple pneumonia, you'd get your antibiotic and you'd be fine, you know. And many a times, although... Good medical practice would say, please ask about it. How's the patient doing? How's the home? How's the how the work? Yes. That's good practice, but yes. many times it's not done. Mm-hmm. But in mental illness, it's not just something you could have done. You must do it because they contribute. 
it's multifactorial. So instead of just having antibiotic from a physician, you're going to include a psychiatrist, a psychologist, sometimes an OT, sometimes a social worker, the GP, the nurse practitioner. All this team costs money, making it all very, very expensive. So if we are to take the conversation away from chronic illness in this comorbidity part of our chat and just look at the the toll that mental illness does to have on your physical health condition. What is that toll? It's very, very high. Mm. As I said earlier, you'll find that somebody with high blood pressure, when they get a mental illness, let's say depression, the pressure goes high and it's difficult to control. And as soon as you control the depression without changing the medication for the blood pressure, the blood pressure comes down. Same with the diabetes, same with your cancer. It flares up and it's not responding and the chemo makes you sicker when you are depressed than when you're not. Mm. Chemo makes you sick, mm. but they're sicker when they're depressed than they're not. And it's, it's a really ugly mix because the cancer itself already set off a depression and then the chemo makes you more depressed, you know. And a lot of our tablets take long to work. So it sort of gives the cancer time or a chance to set in, the chemo mm. to be more horrible. It's a mix of things that are all very unpleasant. Teachers always used to say, you, you take my blood pressure up, these children are stressful. And we thought it was just speak when we were younger. But it's actually true. It's actually true, you know. And I mean, I, I don't know if you've experienced it, that sometimes when you get stressed for some genuine thing, you get a headache, mm-hmm. you know. And the people, oh, I've got a headache, all, this, all these stresses. And it's true. But I mean, your normal stresses are not mental and mental illness, but it already gives you an idea that this is a reality. Yes. Yeah. So symptoms in the body will undoubtedly body. follow. And I, I mean, there are lots of people, um, and maybe, you know, where you'll find that when you get stressed, you get a flu. And when you're not stressed, you don't get flus. Right. And it, it happens all the time. Mm. And many times you'll find that companies are complaining that so-and-so is a chronic absent person. You know, they take too much sick leave. But they actually don't follow to find out what's going on. Because if they followed and found that they are living an extremely stressful life, they'd be able to intervene at that level mm-hmm. to say, how do we help this person? Rather than just looking at the sick days off, check what's going on. And if we intervene or let them get help or you know, any of that type of assistance, then they will take less days off. Yes, yes. So it's at a physical level. It's also at at that normal economic level. Another thing with mental health is that depending on on the diagnosis, depending when it was made, depending on the chronicity. Yes. Treatment, unfortunately, is not, what can I say? You know, you have one headache, you'll take one panado. But many times you'll find that, first of all, to treat a mental illness that's already taken root takes long because our tablets just don't work tomorrow. To be... 10 days, 15 days before you actually start to respond to that medication. One thing. The second thing is that many times we have to increase the medication, but we can't start at 60. We have to start at 20 and let it run its course. Then we add another 20, then another 20. So it takes longer and longer. Mm. So you'll find that people, even those that have been treated, but they're yet undertreated. So they're not going to get better. That's half the story. The other half of the story is that if we're considering this as a chronic illness, that yes. means you'll need medication chronically. So if you've taken medication and you remit, you're better, you're back at work and then you stop medication, you're going to relapse. Mm-hmm. You know, And, and so your, your costs are escalating as opposed to getting better. And unfortunately, the patient, the family, the employer, the priest, whoever, many people are not aware of the chronicity, which therefore obviously means that you should also be taking medication at a chronic level. And so there's, oh, no, she was fine. Now why is she sick again? Because it's a chronic illness. Right. You know, it's just like your high blood pressure. If you don't take your medication, you will have a stroke. Mm-hmm.
And people unfortunately miss that and they think that they've been cured or people get sick of taking medication, which is true. But it then, you know, you relapse and you start all over again. Because we do hear it. You hear people say things like, I decided to stop taking the medication because I was doing better. Mm-hmm. Or now I'm exercising or they look at, they, they, they've introduced other things to support their well-being and then decide to eliminate the medication from the equation. Is it possible to get to a point, to reach a point where it's not necessary? And with what sort of interventions would that picture be realizable? Okay, shall we talk about depression just as as, As an example? example. By and large, if somebody has one depressive episode and the environment is containing and uh, agreeable, they should be treated for no less than six months, preferably a year. And after that, we can say that there's a very good chance that they are cured. Okay. A second episode dictates that you're going to be on treatment for no less than five years. Okay, two to five years. That's the second episode. Is this having a second episode with the first one untreated? No, no, no. You've had You've your had first. The, it was the treated. Treatment. You were in right. full remission. You were mm-hmm. doing well. Mm-hmm. And then something happened. Then you have a second episode. Then you, the, for that one, you must treat no less, at least two to five years. And then you're fine. And then no treatment. It's fine. But the third treatment, we say it's chronic. Don't stop. But on other more aggressive things like schizophrenia, schizophrenia, your first episode, that's it. You are chronic. Okay, understood, understood. So the approach would be different. Yeah. But what are some of the causes that lead people not to seek help? Often people don't seek out treatment because there's stigma. People stigmatize the mental illness itself. They stigmatize people with mental illness. And they, because they feel stigmatized, they are afraid, embarrassed, ashamed to seek help. That is the one thing. There's also beliefs and understanding of medical illness processes. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know where the ideas initially came from, but lots of people think of other pathological pathways that got you to where you are and not as an illness. Yes. And therefore, there is no need to seek help. You know, if you've been bad and then you have a depression, it will be, uh-huh, you know, God got you. You know, whereas you actually have an illness, mm-hmm. which happens, mm-hmm. you know. And other people are able to just, people you'll find people just, shall I say, accounting for it, excusing for it. Let's say you're in a terrible accident, people are dead and you have also been injured terribly. Everybody will make it like, yeah, for sure, yeah, you should be like that, yes. you know. because you a product of, of, of that traumatic your, experience. Exactly. Mm. And nobody actually thinks, actually, you can get help for this which is a problem. So it is how people see the psychopathology as is it is it something medical or has it got other causations? Yes. And that normal thing. Uh, and sometimes people think this is how life is. They take it as just normal life. Mm. I, I could tell you this anecdote of this lady that I can't forget, an elderly lady, and she's severely depressed. And I'm trying to say to her, you're depressed. And she couldn't understand why I'm saying she's sick because her answer was, but life is difficult. Yes. It's normal life. Mm. And it, it wasn't. She it's was, the natural cause yeah, of this but this Luckily, existence. she agreed to take the tablets Good. for me, as she said. Mm-hmm. But she felt better, and thank goodness for that. Mm. So, yeah, people sometimes just choose not to. And unfortunately, we all live in communities, and we all have families that tell us, no, you don't, and then you'll get addicted, and then it will make you this way, it will make you that way. And another thing, of course, is that true enough, like any other tablets and any other thing you put in your mouth, there could be side effects. 
And sometimes the side effects are less than pleasant. Mm-hmm. You know, we accept that. So some drugs will give you weight gain, um, give you a little bit of a tremor, will give you urinary problems, you know. But it is better if when people experience side effects, they come back and say, um, I have a tremor, I can't drink my tea. Instead of just dropping. Instead of just dropping. But you see, when already there wasn't a an encouraging and supportive environment that you're in, mm-hmm. and then you get a side effect. It's almost like, yeah, we told you, you see now, you know, this thing is poisoning you. And that's why we try and spend a lot of time talking to patients. This is what is happening. This is what we expect. This is how it works. Then we invest a lot of time in that. Yes. Now, I imagine there should be a lot of education that goes into mm. this so that you get to grips to understanding what is happening in your brain, in your body when these episodes happen and why you need medication and what intervention the medication brings about. Any thoughts on the language we use when we talk about mental illness? Because we use words that can exacerbate the stigma on the one hand, things like disease, which, you know, if you break it up, dis-ease, someone battling with an, Ill, with an illness, they were attacked by X or Y that they suffer from or that they are a victim of or confined to, you know, the language we use further just disempowers and stigmatizes. No, definitely. Definitely. The language we use can be unfortunate, Mm. you know, at Mm. best. And many times I think it's even more unfortunate when people don't mean to be ugly, mean, insensitive, whatever. And then they just are, because for somebody who's suffering from that illness, you know, who has that illness, it's different. Mm. You know, I'm talking about things like sometimes, I mean, there are still many people who talk about deaf and dumb. Right. And some of them don't mean to be mean at all, that, and they don't even hear that there's something wrong with that, mm. you know, and they're just being normal. Mm. So, yeah, that many times the language, and I mean, people talk of committing suicide. You know, usually you commit a crime and suicide is not a crime. So, I mean, is it the best word you could have used? And unfortunately, these are the mainstream language. Yes. And yeah, the language can be actually damaging many times to, to, the, to the patient or the person who has the mental illness. It can be very damaging. And then you mix it in with the stigma. You mix it in with the poor support and poor understanding from family, from environment. It just makes it very difficult for the people to live. I want to revisit the question of substance abuse in our society and its relationship with mental illness. As you said, this is a group on its own. And when you look at the South African context, some of the figures that were one of the biggest drinking nations in the world and so on, the levels of binge drinking in our society, even the drug problem in our community, this relationship, what comes first? Is it the mental illness that precipitates the abuse or is it the other way around? Or is is that even a, a conversation on its own? It's a conversation on its own, I'd say. Mm. But... In a large majority, there is the mental illness first, or the stresses of it, you know, and then people are self-medicating with substances or seeking company that would help them to manage, or according to them, manage the, the stress, whatever it is, you know. I mean, you have young people with very dysfunctional families, so they go hang out with people who are smoking because they look a bit more cool and a bit more comfortable and relaxed. And then they try and then they know that this actually makes me feel a whole lot better. It might be for 15 minutes, but it's a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. But then the addiction sets in. So, yeah, the mental illness usually is first, but it is not diagnosed at that point. 
But yes, you do get a whole lot of other, I mean, but as I said earlier, 80% of people who abuse substances have got a mental illness, definitely. And what does the substance do to the mental illness? It always makes it worse. Mm. It always makes it worse. It makes it difficult. And sometimes, or many times, I must say, with illnesses like schizophrenia, I mean, we've got a, a whole wardrobe full of medication that we could use, but it's not uncommon Mm-hmm. that you'll find that whatever we use doesn't exactly make the person feel 100% okay. There's something that we miss sometimes, you know. There's something called negative symptoms in schizophrenia where people haven't got the volition to do things. They don't have the will. They are just slow. They don't have the drive. Yes. And it's part of the illness. And of course, in families and homes, you'll be called lazy and he does nothing. And, but it's actually part of the illness. And sometimes, I mean, I'm not promoting this, please, please. But, you, you know, many times you'll find that they feel better when they smoke cigarettes. It just gives them that little extra normal. And they feel better when they smoke cannabis, dacha, because it also gives them a little bit of normal. And there are many times where we don't quite get it. And it, there's nothing we can do because the, all the drugs we have don't hit that one point. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like they, they have the go. But, okay, now they're not psychotic, you know, they don't have the positive symptoms, which is hallucinations, delusions and all that. They don't have that. But the negative symptoms, that slowness, lethargy, slow drive, no volition, no can do it, no vuma, basically. It's more difficult to get. Is it easy to mistake that for depression? Yes, yes, it is. Mm. And and of course, remember that these mental illnesses also can live together. Right. You know, when you have schizophrenia, you're not now immune to depression. You mm-hmm. can have the both. Mm-hmm. So yes, but the negative symptoms make it very difficult sometimes to decipher. If we're to look at South Africa, are there conditions that are unique to South Africa that put us at risk of mental illness? If we look at stats throughout the world, the statistics throughout the world, the prevalence, we'll find that the mental illnesses are much of a muchness. They're very similar. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of studies that have been made to show which countries have got more depression, but we fit in. I was looking at a study that showed middle-income countries, and we are in that group with Mexico and Russia and whatever. We were in the middle, and in that group, the country that showed the least was Mexico. So what I'm saying is that there's much of a muchness. Despite the fact that we can say that we have a lot more stressors, You know, I mean, there is unemployment, there's poverty, there's violence. There is our history that has, without doubt, predisposed us and continues to expose us to a higher degree of mental illness. Mm. But then, I mean, there's other countries and other places that will also have their set of stressors that they have had. I mean, countries at war, you can imagine that they should have a high degree of like a depression. So I don't want to say yes, yes, yes that South Africa is different and they'll experience it more. But in the same breath, I will say that we have our own stressors that are slightly different from other people. And the biggest thing, especially that makes us different, is our history. Um, How does mental illness differ in adults and in children? It does differ. Children present differently from adults. Adults, first of all, of course, have got um, language, the use of language. So they're able to say, I'm feeling bad, I'm not sleeping, I'm tired, I'm slow, my body's painful, I'm sad, I'm crying, and all that. They're able to say that. Children many times don't have the command of language, or they don't have enough words, or they don't know what many words mean. Yes. And you'll find that in their younger group, you know, let's say 4, 5 to 12, they act out. So they will do badly at school, they'll be clingy, they'll cry, they'll fight, they, they'll wet their beds they, when they were already dry. 
those type of things. And at school, there'll be, you know, you'll be called to school three times a day. You know, she's, he's fought, he's thrown out somebody's books, he's done this, mm-hmm. done that, and that, the other. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, children, especially in depressions and things, they present differently. And, and you, you, you have to have a very high index of suspicion, especially if it's a child who is performing reasonably okay at school. Yes. And then suddenly you are called every day, the, the marks have gone from... 72 to 35, many parents are also calling you that your daughter, your son slept mine or mm-hmm. took their books mm-hmm. or tore their pants, whatever. You know, all those. And you find that the children become very clingy. So before you could drop them at school and goodbye, goodbye. Done. Now they don't want to be dropped at school. In fact, they refuse to go to school altogether sometimes. They're just crying. They hold on. Their habits change and they become quite different children. And you then have to think something is happening here. Right. But are there children who are able to mask that? And I suspect even in their teen years, perhaps that it might not show up in their marks. It might not show up in behavior that suggests uh, when it's masked and it's hard to sort of put your finger on. I think you, the chances are that you'll see the changes. Mm-hmm. But you sometimes, you know, it is the behavior that is very, very dysfunctional. And you then sort of concentrate on the bad behavior as it would be, and and actually forget. And you're looking for, especially in the family, this, you know, is this a naughty child? Just don't, you know, whereas actually it shouldn't be a naughty child. So they might not mask it, but, but they might present completely differently. You find children who just suddenly wet their beds, you know, and you think, what's going on? Or every day they come from school and they've lost something, small things, you know, but every day now there's no jersey, there's no shoes, there's no cricket bat, there's no this. And the cycle of getting into trouble. Uh, They're always getting into trouble, you know, and the trouble can be small trouble. I mean, they threw a rubber at the teacher, they Mm. did this, and then it can get big, you know, they cut somebody's hair off, they steal things. Mm. And many times when they're stealing, they're not stealing for use, they're stealing to steal. Right. Yeah, to just distress. And sometimes, you know, kids, when they do misbehave, as we can call it, it's actually sometimes that they want attention. And if the caregiver parent are not there or not paying enough attention or Mm. always busy, then sometimes children will feel it's better to get negative attention than to get nothing at all. So then they misbehave. Let's conclude by looking at myths because... We need to debunk myths that are related to the causes and the condition that mental illnesses are. What are some of the myths you've encountered? The big thing is that people have been bewitched. It's very big. Either you've been bewitched or sometimes people say you haven't um, performed certain rituals, you haven't pleased your ancestors, you Mm -hmm. haven't, you know, that, that line is very, very common. And it, it's very interesting for me, I mean, the, when, when people feel that you haven't performed certain rituals and then they're depressed because sometimes, you know, I have certain thought about this and I know from experience and just common sense when you think about it, that if it's somebody who believes deeply in their rituals and their cultural beliefs and things like that, if they don't perform that ritual, they should get depressed, yeah. isn't it? They should. <laughs> you know, if you're supposed to do something and you didn't do you it. You didn't do it, yeah. You should, yeah. you know, so... We can't just poo-poo it away immediately say, oh, please, no, this is depression and we see all the signs and even your neurochemistry when we go into your brain mm-hmm. proves it. Yeah, we know that. But the thing is, it makes sense that I have not appeased my ancestors, so they're not going to do well. And that for me has always been an interesting thing, especially with, with employers. Yeah. Because I don't know if you know, many times there are lots of cultural groups that have got quite complex death and funeral rituals. Yes. 
and companies don't want to understand that because, I mean, you then went to the funeral, then you went to the, you know, as you know, there's washing of spades, mm. and then you went to the, I don't know how to describe yes, it. Yes, the you end know, of the, the morning, morning exactly. where the woman stops. And then you went to the... Right. You know, and it really, it is a lot, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. and it depends on every... And you can't say there's a, a standard because different cultures, different families do different things. Yes. But if you then refuse somebody to do that, there's going to be problems, mm. you know, because they are going to get depressed. They're going to be poorly functional and they are going to then blame everything on that fact. Right. You know, if they trip once they go out the door, it is because I haven't done this. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, they bash the car. It's because I haven't done this. Mm. And it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So is it a myth? Yes and no. You know, but definitely if somebody believes like that, then you have to accept and understand. And of course, it's it's not African cultures only. I mean, there are cultures throughout the entire world. And yes. ev- every group practice their own thing. And if they don't do it, I'm sure there's problems mm-hmm. uh, if they're culturally steeped. Those for me are the very big myths about bewitchment, about uh, not performing rituals. And of course, religious, religiously related. You know. Interesting that you raised that because in another interview that we did for this series, for this podcast, was with Guguma Sondo, who suffers from mental illness. And in their efforts to help her, her family took her to church. They believed that she needed prayer and that prayer would cure her. And so, as you said, it stretches beyond culture. There are also religious beliefs that may prevent someone from fully getting the help that they require. Yeah, it's true. And sometimes it it sits uncomfortably when you're trying to say that prayer will not just be the one that's needed. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to challenge religious beliefs and prayer and things. I'm not going to. In fact, I could even encourage it that people must pray harder and harder. But, you know, when... I, as a Western-trained doctor, identify that this person is depressed. This is my standard way of treating it. But again, we go back to that psychosocial um, method of doing things. So yes, you, we will give you tablets that will make you better. But we st- actually are quite comfortable for you to continue with your spiritual beliefs, you know, because they actually add something that we cannot add. And, and in fact, the same applies with culturally steeped people where the medication and my therapy can do something for you, but it leaves that little space. You see, because we explain what's wrong with you at a chemical level, but we don't explain why. Whereas your traditional and healer... And you know, as human beings, we want why. Yes. And your traditional healer is able to say, because you did not do this, that and the other, and then the person's got a full answer. So I'm not saying I'm going to encourage everybody to go see that traditional healer, never. But I experience has taught us that let people go see them, but try and negotiate not to. And that it shouldn't be a battle. It shouldn't be a battle and it's not a competition and it's not, and you're not going to be, because that was another big thing that mm. previously, maybe 20, 30 years ago, people were ashamed and embarrassed and, oh, you're a barbarian if you're believing in your cultural things. I'm not going to say anybody should believe, but if they already are believing, then let give them space mm-hmm. and just negotiate that this is my medication. I'd like for you to take it and use it this way. So, yeah, I think if we work that way, we get the best benefit for, for the patient, you know. But, of course, if people don't have those type of beliefs, don't enforce them on them, you know. Then they're fine, you know, they are okay. They can to, take this route happily, yeah. pursue and if, but, a clinical route. But, I mean, as I said, I don't want to argue with, with the churches and priests and uh, prophets and everything. But I only hope that they would also have the same thinking to work with that. Yes, sure, pray hard, 
but do take your medication or perform your rituals and take your medication or whatever, you know, they shouldn't be exclusive or only do this. Yes, but it does seem like there is now a respect of disciplines that is going on, of modalities that is going on, an acknowledgement, as you said, that this is a whole human being and one approach perhaps only covers a certain component and that there are others that can complete or be part of this complement of of treatment. Definitely. Mm. It's been wonderful talking to you, Dr. Siape. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much, Eza. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you will definitely enjoy our episode on maintaining your mental well-being. Listen out to hear our experts share top tips about those simple lifestyle habits that keep your mental health in check for life. We also speak to two very brave women, Letitia Duplessis, about what it takes to maintain mental well-being in the face of mental illness, and to Letitia Zulu about how her healthy lifestyle kept her going after she lost the love of her life, husband Gugu, on Kilimanjaro three years ago. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Healthier, brought to you by Discovery Health. Join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Discover Healthier and tag at Discovery underscore SA. You can subscribe to our podcast channel, Discovery South Africa, on your favorite podcast app or visit discovery.co.za to listen to our shows.